Hello and welcome to the Ballot Box Global Election Coverage from a team of political scientists. I'm Jonathan Parker in London. I'm Chris Terry in Manchester. I'm Andres Besser in New York City. All right, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ballot Box. So this week we are, um, I suppose, jumping on the, the bandwagon of every politics-related podcast where you're talking about the US midterms. Um, we'll try and give them a little bit more of a... Um, it's sort of explore some of the more niche aspects, I hope, and a bit more of a kind of comparative focus, as is as is usual for us um, uh, as well. Um, so these were, as most almost all listeners, I, I'm I'm kind of struggling to think that there's some li- not some listeners that won't have, uh, have some knowledge about what's happened here a little bit. Um, but these these uh, turned out a little bit differently than expected. I think is fair to say um, we were we were expecting I think a bit more of a um, of a stronger night for the Republican Party than has was and is, has ended up being being pretty positive for the Democrats given that they are the incumbent party and the economic situation is is not uh, particularly pretty um, as well. Both of the kind of classic things we think of as um, as as harming the um, the party of the president. Obviously, there is going to be quite a lot to unpack here as to why exactly that that happened. So fortunately, we are very lucky to be joined by a special guest. Um, We've got um, with us today, um, Professor Chris Carman, who is um, my uh, one of my new colleagues at the University of Glasgow, um, where he is the Stevenson Professor of Citizenship. Um, His research focuses on representation and its alternatives, um, elections, electoral processes, public opinion, public policy, all stuff that um, I think is going to be absolutely fascinating to listeners of this podcast. Um, He's published a lot on um, on electoral politics um, and representation. He looks at the US. He also looks at Scotland and the UK as well. So he's got a good kind of cross-Atlantic comparative work um, going on here as well. Um, So some of his books include Representing Red and Blue, How the Culture Wars Change the Way Citizens Speak, and and politicians listen and more Scottish than British, the 2011 Scottish Parliament election. Um, He's also provided a lot of commentary on US politics. So you may have seen him um, on the BBC recently as well, uh, commenting on the midterms. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to having a a bit more of a a properly geeky conversation because the BBC (laughs) things, you know, they're very fast hits. So, uh, you know, diving in a little bit more is, is, is always fun. Sorry, I don't think I'm going to offend any of our listeners when I say I'm sure they're all massive geeks. So I think this will be this will be perfectly, um, perfectly fine to, to get as geeky as you need about this. Um, so um, I think um, we'll we'll start. So we normally start podcasts by um, explaining a little bit what the, what the constitutional setup of the country that we're talking about is. I think that that most people probably know what the constitution is. <laughs> At least most country. people who listen to this. <laughs> yes. So I think um, so. This is normally Chris Chris Terry's beat. Um, so do you want to just tell us basically what is up for election? Maybe um, and and if he misses anything out, um, Chris Carmen, do you want to just uh, jot in tell tell us what else was important? Yeah. I mean, basically, what's up for election is the house. Um, the House of Representatives, um, the House of the of Congress, a third of the Senate. Um, it, it, um, I can't actually remember off the top of my head how many governors, but a lot of governors and a large number of you know, state legislatures as well. So, um, and then at lower levels as well, there's a lot of referendums and mayoral elections, which are, people always have a tendency to forget that there's always a lot of stuff going on at like that kind of level level as well, but um, which can also 
be quite important in some ways. Yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, the the midterm elections are actually one of those ones that highlight just how much Americans vote, particularly if we're thinking about in comparison to other to other countries. Um, so yeah, as as Chris said, you know, 435 members of the House of Representatives. There were actually 35 uh, Senate seats up this time because there was a special election in in Oklahoma. So that that uh, increased the the number in this round. Then I think it was 37 governors, uh, 6,278, if memory serves, state legislative seats. So that's 88 uh, percent of the uh, overall number of legislative seats. Um, there are 137 ballot propositions uh, uh, across the states. There were 27 secretaries of state uh, up for election. And well, I'm sure we'll get around to talking about election deniers at some point. Um, and then the um, 8,000 some odd uh, jurisdictions that run elections across the U.S., many of those had uh, more local level elections uh, within them. So remembering that Americans also would have been asked to vote earlier in the year at primary elections. So in even number years, Americans are sort of requested to go to the ballots. Not all of them obviously do, but are requested to go to the ballot uh, box uh, twice a year. Uh, so it's it's an awful lot of voting that takes place in the U.S. Does this depress turnout, do you think, having so many types of elections? Because obviously the U.S. does have fairly low turnout by international standards. Is this a part of it? Just the fact that voting just insanely amounts? Yeah, it does. Uh, I mean, you know, you certainly see uh, low salience elections receive far fewer voters. I mean, there's it, particularly if you get to very localized elections. So in some cities, for instance, they'll have a referendum on whether or not they should uh, pay for a new stadium for the uh, American football team or something like that. And those will get turnout. If you get into the double digits, sometimes you're doing well uh, in the turnout for those sorts of things. Um, you know, we certainly see that midterm elections have lower turnout than on-year elections. On-year elections, usually in the mid-60s or so, or low 60s, mid-60s percent. Um, the highest turnout at a midterm election was actually uh, since 1914, was in 2018, it got 49.4% turnout. Uh, this one, it looks like the turnout isn't going to be as high. They're still counting votes and they will be for quite some time. So we don't know the, don't know the numbers, but it'll probably be, you know, uh, about 0.5 or more or less uh, in turnout than the previous one. So it won't be quite as high. Uh, but then the other thing to point out, is is what's called ballot roll-off is another sort of way of thinking about uh, so much voting means fewer people vote. So ballot roll-off is that is that phenomenon where uh, people vote for the top of the ballot, the most important races. So in in this round in midterms, it's governors or senators, but in on-year presidential years, it's vote for the president. But then maybe stop voting sort of midway down the thing. So they might vote for governor and senator and member of, of the House and maybe state legislature, um, maybe state judge, because a lot of states elect their judiciaries. And then they just sort of stop by the time they get to mayor and all that, because those, those things, you know, just aren't as exciting. So that's another way in which people just don't vote as much uh, by not voting at the bottom of the ticket, by the top of the ticket. And that's me talking way too much. Sorry. 
<laughs> no, no, no. I think this is a really good reminder of, of just how, um, I guess, what a different beast elections are in a way in the United States and that there's so many um, offices and ballot initiatives that are up for election. And just, you know, to chime in on the on the on the uh, on the topic of turnout, um, voter registration can also be really different in the US. I mean, it's an extremely localized process. And um, unless you're from a state where getting a driver's license automatically registers you to vote, um, or if you haven't, or, or you know, and, and unless you haven't moved state, um, it can actually, you know, there, there's also some difficulties in, in registration, or at least, if not difficulties, quirks. In other countries, registration is pretty automatic. Um, although in the U.S., I mean, some, it, it, it's highly localized. I think that that's my impression. Yeah, and in, in, in the U.S., I mean, whenever you start to try to explain things on the BBC or whatever, usually the first thing you have to do is you have to explain to people, well, it depends on what state you're in, right? Because um, usually when talking about these sorts of things, I usually start a lecture by reminding people that the U.S. is a federal system um, and the U.S. likes to think of itself as being a system in which um, independent what, what saw themselves as independent states during the founding period came together to form the United States of America. It's pretty much, you know, what the name is, what it is on the tin, right? It's these United States that that saw themselves in, as independent. And being somebody who was born and raised in Texas, I can assure you that Texans see themselves as still being somewhat of an independent country compared to the rest of the nation. But, um, you know, so you have to look at the different different practices across the different states. And so, yeah, voter registration is varies highly across the states, right? Some states have same day registration where if you aren't registered, you can pretty much rock up to the to the polling place and, and register. Some states have um, uh, windows that are very long and some states have windows that are very, very narrow. Uh, meaning you have a very short period of time in which you can register. And sometimes that's quite far in advance of the election itself. So there's quite a few states that have a variety of election laws that are rather uh, restrictive. And the the cynic might say are designed to discourage uh, people and certainly certain types of people from, from voting. And even in this round of elections, we saw, for instance, Nebraska has now voted, uh, adopted voter ID laws. Um, Michigan actually went in the opposite direction and started making it easier with they adopted early voting and they adopted, adopted drop boxes. Um, this is all by referendum. Um, interestingly, if we're thinking about how places vote, Nevada, uh, it looks like they are likely, I haven't checked it actually, today, but recently it looked like they were going to adopt um, a new open primaries with ranked choice voting, sort of instant runoff voting as it's called in the US. Um, they're gonna adopt that uh, for, for elections in, in Nevada. So they're gonna join Alaska and Maine as having sort of uh, instant runoff voting for, for higher level offices. So the way that Americans vote varies depending on the state. So the way you vote in New York is going to be different from the way you vote in Texas and the way you can vote in Florida versus California, Oregon, certainly Oregon, all mail-in ballot. Uh, so very different, different ways of people voting. Yeah, and I suppose to, to non-Americans, that seems insane, um, to be honest. I mean, this is the thing you would have one the not well obviously in the uk you're used to having maybe different rules for different levels of government um etc but you, there's a general assumption that the same level of government 
the same level of sort of so you would have the same yeah. like electoral rules going on to it um and this yeah it's it's I, I will always, when discussing, if I have discussed the U.S. to students, have to remind them the U.S. the U.S. Constitution and its institutions are actually very, very old comparatively. Um, it's actually one of the oldest kind of functioning con constitutions in in the world, and obviously these rules were were made in the 18th century um, for for a very different political climate. Um, so we have things like the two year term for the House of Representatives, which nowadays looks also very unusual, et cetera. Um, and most of the time now seems to lead to just basically cutting the kind of presidential term in, in half, basically in terms of like what can be, what a presidential administration can actually kind of get done. Um, and then we have all of these ideas about the kind of being able to vote into people who directly will control um, electoral administration and stuff like this. Um, I don't know, in terms of the kind of polarization um, of US politics now and the kind of threats to democracy? Do we think that the institutions are playing any role in kind of um, endangering American democracy and kind of governability in, in this way? Uh, I suppose it depends on which institutions it is that we're talking about um, there. So um, certainly, you know, um, there's the argument that, well, there's a debate uh, in, in the US if we're talking about political polarization, sort of ideological polarization, whether that's being led by the elites or whether it's being led by the mass, right? And this is one of the big debates going on back and forth in, in the US as to which is following which or which is leading which. Um, and, you know, one of the arguments is, is that, um, it's actually, uh, you know, elites, elected officials who are, you know, sorry, we could think of the Marjorie Taylor Greene types, right? The, the the ones who are who are rather far out there on the on the one ideological pole, and sort of say things that attract people and, and sort of push people towards, or at least maybe pull people towards the ideological poles. Um, on the other hand. Um, uh, you you can get the argument that actually it's the 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 voters uh, who are sort of sort of more polarized, and so the, there's just this ongoing debate as to where 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 the polarization is coming from, um, and then you can throw in on top of that things like social media, um, you know uh, whether or not social media is is encouraging greater polarization. So you have the ideological polarization polarization question. But then you also have affective polarization, right? And uh, like Charles Stewart recently put on Twitter a couple of, of great graphs. If anybody's interested, they should look up Charles Stewart's. Um, and if you're interested in elections and, and following how elections are, are run in the US, his is a great Twitter feed. Um, but he put up a, a series of graph about, uh, graphs about affective polarization. Affective polarization, of course, being the, the idea of, of, as opposed to ideological, where it's sort of left, right, ideology scale. Affective polarization is more about how much one likes or doesn't like or thinks favorably about an out group, right? So if we think of how positive we are towards our in-group uh, and we contrast that with how positive or negative we are towards the out-group, we're seeing in the U.S. the, the, the division there increasing substantially. And uh, as I say, the graphs that Charles Stewart posted are quite striking as to the extent of affective polarization. So that's the that's the element to which you know we don't like or uh, you know trust even people different from. So 
Republicans don't trust Democrats. Democrats don't trust uh, Republicans. Um, and some have been arguing that could also be somewhat fueling some of this uh, increase in, in turnout, right? So, you know, you could think of Diana Mutz's book, Hearing the Other Side, uh, when she argues that some of the things that get people to participate are exactly the sorts of things that turn them off deliberating and the things that turn them on to deliberating, deliberating are the things that get people to participate, right? So by saying they're wrong, they're bad, um, that encourages people to feel, ah, I'm scared, I need to go to the polls, I need to stop them from, from doing bad things. Um, so affective polarization might be one of those things that's that's helping the midterm turnout as well. So I suppose the the question to ask really is kind of what what can be done about this? Is there any way that we can kind of turn the dial down? I mean, I mean, I put in the show notes kind of facetiously to ask if you had a if you had a magic wand and you gave gain control over the US Constitution, is there anything you could do? But is there anything also within the existing setup that could be done to kind of alleviate this, do you think, at all? I mean, I'll oh, throw that question out to anyone else as well. And Andres is also a US resident and uh, and, and lives through this. <laughs> yeah, oh, I hate it when people ask me that question. That's a <laughs> tough one. Um, you know, I think, it, I think um, in many ways, I'm sort of reminded of the old sort of New England phrase, if you ask somebody for directions and they'd say, well, I wouldn't start from here. Um, that's, that's in a way, that's kind of where you are with some of these sort of how to, how to fix um, American politics. Obviously, I think, I think things like uh, what Maine, Alaska, and maybe Nevada are doing with um, thinking about adopting different electoral systems within the states um, because, of course, you are limited by the Constitution to the sorts of things that you can do. But according to the Constitution, the states can pick their own time, place, and manner of elections. And so that means they can they can have their own electoral systems and they can adopt these. Um, you know, Nebraska is also different in the way that it, it does its elections. So you can think of the different ways that you could, you could structure elections within the states, going to things that uh, sort of encourage... Um, yeah, you know, people to to sort of pull on the opposite side of the aisle. So, you know, if you get instant runoff voting, um, you know, get people to rank their choices uh, and encourage them to rank the choices of people from other parties. Uh, you know, that's that's probably not a bad place to start, actually, I think. Then you can start to think about election finance, uh, the extent to which campaign finance needs to be substantially reformed. Um, in Pennsylvania Senate race, the one that John Fetterman won, uh, $312 million was spent uh, by the campaign campaigns and the outside organizations in, in that race. Um, that, that shattered uh, previous records. Also, another one shattering records was Georgia Senate race. Uh, at I think it came in at $271 million or so uh, spent in that race, last I saw. Uh, and of course, that's going to a runoff in on the 6th of December. So the amount of money is going to just be pouring into Georgia. Um, and so, Andreas, you, 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 since you're in, in the U.S., uh, you, you'll probably have seen at least some of these, not in one of the most probably competitive districts in the, in the world, but um, you'll have seen quite a lot of these uh, ads and, and that sort of thing that are paid for by all this outside money. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the fascinating things about... Um, 
I guess, ads um, and electoral campaigning in the US is that um, A, it's very, uh, it, it obviously tracks how competitive the district or the state is. So in New York and in the district I live in, I saw actually very little um, political advertising. Oh, I saw relatively little political campaigning until like towards the end of the of the election. So um, it was basically from from uh, the the New York State governor's um, race, which I think towards the end seemed yeah. to be closer than they expected, and so they were obviously pouring in money. Um, it's extremely tailored, and I think social media has helped campaigns tailor advertisement because they know where you're where you're logging in from. So yeah. you see different amounts of of, um, of 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 political campaigns on you know social media and YouTube and so on, but also on your TV. Like digital TVs are now also um, apparently they're very good at um filtering what sort of advertisement you see so you'll see different things depending on where you are it's kind of it's pretty crazy um and also the amount of money is incredible like this camp this this uh 2022 election there was an estimate by open secrets that suggested that the that the total cost of all political campaigns would exceed 15 billion dollars which is absurd it's totally crazy um and you know both parties are kind of they're relatively equally matched, but not all candidates are, right? So there's the, the so-called money primary, where actually only campaigns, only candidates who can credibly um, show their party that they'll be able to raise huge amounts of money will actually make it on the ballot. So the money is making, is doing the work kind of behind the scenes, even before political advertisement kicks in. It's it, That's, I think, a very, um, a very kind of, uh, negative aspect of, of the US electoral system. The other thing that I would add, if I could change it, just because I live here, would be to forbid um, gerrymandering and create a system whereby only independent commissions get to redistrict um, political maps. I think this is the case in Nebraska, actually, and somewhere else, where there's actually, it's, it's two states with those that only have two electoral districts, where they actually have independent commissions draw the boundaries. But this is, I mean, this is a huge driver of determining which votes matter the most. They're kind of, in a way, they're kind of predetermined by who who gets to draw the maps in the U.S. Yeah, I think California has also gone to a, a sort of a nonpartisan type commission. But in New York, you had your, uh, the, the Democrats drawn map got thrown out by the courts, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. It did. It was crazy. Um, apparently, like the Democrats presented an extremely kind of, I guess, kind of exaggerated map that was just going to, you know, it took parts of Staten Island and and put Prospect Heights or Brooklyn Heights kind of jutted it into <laughs> Staten Island. So like two completely different demographics and diluted all of Staten Island with with, you know, very kind of um, upper middle class liberals in Brooklyn. It was a pretty ham-fisted attempt at like gaining an advantage, and so the, the local court struck it down, and then actually made um, made New York State map much more favorable towards Republicans. And we were just discussing this before you came on. I think it's about four Republicans who will now be elected to Congress, which otherwise wouldn't have been, um, who wouldn't have gotten into Congress. But it also kind of talks about one of the general dilemmas of reforming the U.S. system beyond having a magical wand which is unilateral disarmament, 
right? So it's very difficult to kind of on principle go against gerrymandering as a party if you know that it's happening everywhere else by the by the opposition, right? Yeah, I, I, I think there's also some speculation that, for instance, Florida, um, the the gerrymandered map in Florida is also one of the things that that looks like it's likely to substantially help the Republicans take the House um, as well. Yeah, I think gerrymandering is definitely one of the ones that uh, you know switching to sort of nonpartisan commissions across across the U.S. would be across the states within the U.S. would be uh, yeah a good idea. Okay, um, so maybe we'll talk a little bit about the um, the campaign um, this time um, before before we obviously this ended up being more favorable to um, Democrats than we than we thought it was going to be. Um, but there was for a lot of the for a lot of the campaign, and especially in the kind of immediate um, weeks before the before the election, um, it kind of looked like the Republicans were kind of riding high um, on this um, as well. Um, and obviously, people were looking a lot at who exactly the Republicans had had selected or who had won Republican primaries for a lot of these positions. And often they seem to be on the more extreme end of the party. They seem to be um, either people that Trump had, had explicitly backed, or they seem to be kind of in his sort of ideological image. Of most, many of them um, were kind of uh, these election deniers who claim that the 2020 election was was stolen um, from Trump. Um, and these had won a lot of primary elections. And I know you, you've spoken before about this strategy that the Democrats had of kind of like choosing their opponents and kind of tactically supporting these people. Um, so I can't decide whether this is genius or a kind of massive like um, uh, move of irresponsibility or both. Um, but yeah, what was the, what was the logic behind this? Why did they why did they go for this this like this strategy? Yeah, and if if anybody wants to to see more specifics on this, I think most of the the major you know Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, Politico, they're all now publishing stories on on this this sort of phenomena that took on this year. Basically, what what happened was that early in the year, or even at the end of last year, the the Democratic uh, campaign committees in the House and the Senate sort of decided that what they wanted to try to do was encourage uh, a, a summer of chaos, as, as they called it, within the Republican parties. Um, and so this goes to you know remembering and reminding ourselves that, as we mentioned before, America, you know, they had the primary elections uh, in the states, of course, in which are where partisans in most states um, there's a few states with open primaries, but we'll call it partisans within within the states um, elect or select uh, by election who their who their nominees will be. Right. So these are the primary elections. And so, um, you know, in, in most states, um, it's the case that Republicans only vote in Republican primaries or can only vote in Republican primaries. Uh, and. Uh, Democrats only vote in Democratic primaries and can only vote in those. Some states have these ones where you can cross over and you open and they just get crazy. Um, but if we just sort of go with that sort of broad characterization, um, what happened was that um, uh, Democrats started putting money into advertising in the Republican races to try to build up and um, discourage uh, 
the more moderate Republicans and encourage the more right-wing uh, election denier Trump MAGA type Republicans. Um, and some of the idea was to scare off the more moderate Republicans, and some of it was to build up these more right-wingy types. So reporting is that, say, Sununu um, decided not to run for governor, um, and uh, in Pennsylvania in the governor's race, um, uh, Shapiro spent money in the Republican, Sh Shapiro, who won the Democratic uh, governor competition, um, uh, spent money uh, supporting Mastriano um, in Pennsylvania, who was rather, even by Pennsylvania standards, a rather far to the right sort of sort of candidate. Um, and uh, so they, they supported these. And, and I think, you know, several weeks before the, the election, in various lectures I was giving, I was saying, you know, this might not have been the best idea in the world. You know, you're really putting a lot of, of faith in the idea that we are going to support and have and help the Republicans sort of push them towards or encourage them to select these far right wing candidates on the hope that uh, the general election voters would see these candidates as being unelectable at the general election. Um, seems to me that's a that's a pretty risky gamble. Um, but uh, it seems to have paid off uh, because if we look, uh, many of these uh, sort of more to the right uh, candidates who were sort of supported by democratic money did seem to lose um, at different levels uh, in, in the election. So now, whether or not this is a strategy that can, you know, it might be one of those sort of strategies where it only works once. Um, it might be a high risk strategy, uh, or it might be one of these things that opens up sort of Pandora's box. And now, so are, do the, in the next, in 2024, do the Republicans start doing it uh, in democratic races? What happens when we get to presidential races? Do people start spending money in all sorts of crazy places to, to, to try to help candidates in, in presidential races? Do you get candidates you know, do you get ads like openly encouraging people to register with the other party in order to uh, vote in their primary elections? I mean, it does seem to, whilst on, if you're just going for sort of a, a crass little p politics sort of way of, of doing elections, you might say, oh, that's a, that's a stroke of genius. On the other hand, if you sort of buy into the idea that well, you really should be playing fair. Um, one might wonder whether or not that was actually a, a quote unquote fair strategy for Democrats to adopt. I don't know what, what y'all think of think of that. I might be a little bit skeptical or a little bit cynical about it. Yeah, I, I felt it was a, a tricky one myself. <laughs> I couldn't really, it's a difficult kind of question um, because yeah, ultimately, you want to win um and whenever you want to win when you want to try and you're really really focused on the one that's in front of you because you know ultimately what happens beyond that is unpredictable but it, it i mean the kind of worry i immediately had was just that yeah you, you might some of these people might get elected and all the dangers that they had and um and if it doesn't happen this time maybe it happens next time or yeah, it's it's a difficult 
kind of want to kind of balance the, the risks versus the rewards up. But yeah, I, 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 my tendency is usually to think maybe we don't promote people who are explicitly anti-democratic. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah. You sort of think that, you, you know, the Democrats should just let the Republicans get on with choosing their candidates and the Republicans mm. should but, but mm. Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, and certainly like some of these candidates would have been um chosen anyway because of like the direction of party had been heading the yep. footage or I guess well, that, that is that is true. If you look at some where where you know Democrats didn't spend money, um if you look at some races where the Democrats didn't spend money and Trump didn't endorse a candidate, nonetheless, mm. Republican voters selected candidates. Uh, in some of those contests that were more to the right. Um, mm. now, not places like New York, where they actually have relatively moderate, uh, some of these Republicans who who won um, the House races in New York are, are relatively more moderate than than other uh, Republicans who are elected. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I was also, um, uh, this is, I mean, this was a big issue in the election. I think everyone would have a kind of different conversation if, if Democrats hadn't beaten basically all of the very extreme Republican candidates. Um, I mean, if one were very optimistic, one would say, okay, maybe this forces Republicans to not kind of have their cake and eat it and kind of not be able to kind of wink at very extreme ideas, but then actually kind of not follow through where where that doesn't, um, where they don't gain electorally from that. Um, and in the worst of both worlds, in the worst of, of the world, sorry, worst of possible worlds, you see this becoming like a, a standard electoral tactic within the US. And you see like Republicans doing the same against Democrats, as, as you said, Chris, I mean, I think that that's one of the risks is, is this kind of devolving into um, kind of one more strategy that's used that, that also will eventually put voters off, I think, and, and disenchant a lot of voters too from, from elections. Yeah, I mean, it is well known in, in American politics and, and sort of one of the old sort of theories about primary elections going back, and I say old, going back to the you know, 80s, 70s, 80s. Um, there was a lot written on primary elections, um, particularly when the states were sort of, there was a lot written about when states were scheduling their primary elections, particularly in presidential years, and this is sort of a big deal. But um, also this idea of, of candidates. So what you do in a primary election is you run to the extremes or you run to the outside when you're running for your party's nomination. And then as soon as you get the nomination, you run for the center, right? So this is not unknown that, that this is what candidates can do. Um, and certainly we saw some evidence of that in uh, New Hampshire with Baldock, uh, who ended up getting the New Hampshire Republican nomination. Um, people, uh, I saw a few journalists were, were coining the, the, the phrase of, of calling him an etch-a-sketch candidate. Um, and that's a, a, a dated reference and you have to be of a certain age to remember what an etch-a-sketch is, but it, it used to be, uh, you know, a little red tri uh, or rectangular toy with little white knobs on the bottom of it. And you twist the little knobs to try to try your best to draw a house and it never worked. And it always just ended up looking like a squiggle. Um, but then you, when you turn it upside down and you shake it, the image disappears and then you can turn it back over again. So what uh, Baldock apparently did was right after he won the nomination as the Republican candidate, he basically scrubbed his website of all of the sort of election denying stuff that he had on there and then started, started saying, oh, no, no, I, I 
well, didn't, well, I sort of believe that, but not really. Um, as he as he started running for the for the general election, so you know, you do have that that sort of standard idea that that you know, for the primaries, you do go to your to the sort of middle or extremes of your party to get the nomination, and then you run to the center. But but nonetheless, this sort of takes that in a whole different uh, to a whole to, take takes it to another level, I suppose, of of electioneering. Um, but yeah. Uh, I suppose if you're some one of those people who who really gets into running campaigns and campaign strategy, this is could be one of the big things to watch over the next several cycles to see what happens with it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose one one question which sort of kind of has interested me in the last few years looking at the U.S. is, um, I, and it's come into focus given how many of these kind of more radical candidates were were winning quite consistently across the board. Um, it is is how we would kind of categorize the Republican Party nowadays, and I, I know that um, the U.S. parties don't fit too well into our kind of classic party families in in Europe. But I mean, should we be considering the Republican Party as more of a party of the radical right rather than a conservative party these days? Is it? Do you think it's 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 more like one of those, or, or is it just kind of too hard to hard to say? My my gut feeling on that is a is a rather unsatisfactory answer, I suppose, um, which is we might need to wait and see. Um, you know, one might think that we're in a a, a transitional phase on that. Um, it may well be that with because uh, I guess we're recording on the day that Trump is supposed to to make his announcement whatever whatever that announcement is going to be whether he's still planning on announcing that he's running for for president i imagine that's the case given his legal problems um and uh the fact that that you know ron DeSantis seems like he's he's building momentum um so if, if that's the case oh it's also the day this is also i think the day that that mike pence's um book is being released as as well uh which takes a a somewhat more hard line on on Donald Trump than he has in in the past, perhaps building Mike Pence towards a potential presidential run. So, you know, we have we have a lot of things going on right now um, in the in the Republican Party. I mean, over the weekend, there were quite a few Republicans out on the Sunday talk shows, um, opening openly questioning whether or not. You know, Trump is best seen in the rearview mirror now. Um, now, granted, quite a few of those Republicans, you know, Hogan of of Maryland, for instance, were were already um, uh, people who who were who were you know not in favor of Trump um, or you know never Trumpers or whatever you want, want to call them. Um, but nonetheless, you even people who you might be sort of surprised are starting to say, well. Perhaps you know we should move on, or there was definitely. I think one of the talking point lines was, "We're not a cult. Uh, we're not a party that's run by one single person." You know, since we're not in power, since we don't hold the presidency, we have we can have multiple leaders, and it's unclear who really the leader of the Republican Party is, et cetera, et cetera. For them to start saying that um, is quite something, because previously uh, Republicans would have just been afraid of saying that because they'd be afraid that they they stoke the ire of Trump who would come down on them like a ton of bricks. So um, 
this then raises the question is, is the Republican Party, are we going to start to see it, it sort of having to take a look at itself and decide, are they going to be the party of, of Trump and MAGA? Or are they going to try to move somewhat back towards the center? Um, you know, but to, to try to count t- Trump out, to say, oh, well, Trump is done and that's it. Um, I think that's rather a foolhardy thing because how many times have people done that since you know 2016? I've said, oh well, this is this is the thing you know the the access Hollywood tape. Oh well, that's the thing that knocks Trump out. He's done. Nope, came back. You know, and you have any number of of things since 2016 where they start to, to try to count Trump out. So, what does what what role does Trump have going forward? Um, that's a question mark. What role does say Mitch McConnell, who's been rather vocal about his issues with Trump and the, in the uh, as he called it, poor quality candidates that Trump endorsed. Um, who ends up, is, is it McCarthy who ends up as the leader uh, and probably Speaker of the House in the, in the House? I mean, you were going to have big questions about um, where the Republicans go. And I think there's going to be a little, there's going to be some behind the scenes um, discussions. Very long and circuitous way of saying, I'm not really sure, but maybe Andreas or Chris have, have better ideas on this than I do. I mean, I think that one of the things that, uh, I mean, I, I would agree with Chris, and obviously you're much more knowledgeable about the, the U.S. Uh, political system and like current research on that. But I mean, one of the ways in which American conservatism goes from being conservative to being like far right is in its relation to um, race and ethnicity. And um, to the degree that the, I think, you know, after the Obama election, the the report that the Republicans issued around whether or not they could appeal to ethnic minorities and younger people um, seemed to signal that the Republicans would try to do that. But then, then Trump was actually about turbocharging the voting base, which is predominantly white. Um, and, and, and the fact that he was successful at that and then successful particularly at, at primary elections means that there's a there's a way in which the Republican Party has elements of the far right and can become much, can adopt that kind of more far right attitude precisely because in the, in the US um, elections very quickly get mixed in with uh, issues of race and ethnicity, who belongs in the US, who's like authentically American, et cetera. Um, so in that sense, I think that the Republican Party does does kind of run that risk um, if it doesn't start acting and actively promoting, for example, a, a racial minority leadership um, and also kind of wanting, you know, not being afraid of racial minorities voting at high levels. It's, it's afraid now because it feels like it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it's a losing game for them, right? Um, so in that sense, the Republican, the Republican Party, which is, I think, a big difference with some European parties, um, has a very direct route towards becoming a far-right party if, if it doesn't deal with the issue of race and, and ethnicity in the United States, which is a very, very fraught issue. And it's kind of, kind of at the core of some, uh, some discussions in American development, American political development. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that somebody um who's say going to take the more republican perspective would would point out that you know Donald Trump actually improved um 
uh, amongst Latinos in, in 2020, for instance. Um, and uh, we have seen African-Americans sort of slight uptick uh, voting for Republicans in some races in some states. Uh, same with Latinos. Um, and, you know, if you look at Florida, you know, the, the um, Ron DeSantis taking Miami-Dade County, um, largely on the back of, of the Latino vote. But of course, um, then the, the response to that is yes, but um, this is one of the big problems with people talking about the Latino vote is it's not a monolithic thing at all. And in fact, you know, very different groups vote very differently um, depending on, on the state, right? So in Florida, the Cubans and Venezuelans um, tend to be more Republican supporting. Uh, than you have in in other states. Um, so, um, you know, I think I think if you wanted to be fair to the Republicans, they have had some some outreach efforts, um, and and it has paid off in in some areas uh, and in some states. But uh, nationally, it's still somewhat uh, problematic for them. I think. Yeah, I think it's also always worth remembering that um, American parties are very much the opposite, of, of, at least in the way that they're traditionally structured, not monoliths in any split of the reservation. They are, they can be, you know, they're much more um, kind of gelled towards a kind of single ideology than they've really been in quite in a very long time. Um, I can't can't quite say ever, but, um, but for sure, but um, certainly for a very very long time. Um, but they're also very bottom up, so it's like they elect. It seems to me that the elected officials in the Republican Party would like to move on from like Mandarism and would like to kind of at least look kind of more moderate. <laughs> uh, whether the whether the party primary voters are going to kind of a view of them is clearly an open question at this point. Alan Abramowitz has has a really uh, interesting book. It's it's not super long, and it, but it's a it's a really great read um, that basically points out um, that uh, basically one of the big things that that's happened is is partisan sorting, right? Um, we the back back way back when in the ooh all the way back to the nineteen eighties. You know the, the the parties really were were much more the sort of big tent parties that had all sorts of little coalitions within them that probably maybe shouldn't have actually really even existed except for they were hangovers from the New Deal era in the 1930s. Um, but what we've seen now is is uh, a lot more partisan sorting. So you don't have um, so you're the the Southern Democrat wing like you did in the 1960s and 1970s, right? Those people who have 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 sort of moved over into the party where they kind of ideologically belong, um, and so we have a, a much clearer sorted um, partisan uh, landscape uh, than than we than we perhaps did before. So that's a long non-answer to your question, Jonathan. <laughs> Those are the best kinds of answers. Don't worry. <laughs> so. Um, Maybe maybe we should a little bit now um, talk about the role, I think, of the, the past presidents. We've touched upon the fact that Trump was very engaged in this election um, and very much, um, I think, a bit for the Republicans and, and quite a lot for Trump um, campaigning. I think, but also we've seen 
like Obama being very prominent in the campaign still and coming back and, and lots of these kind of previous presidents um, kind of uh, kind of coming back in. Do you think that they played a significant role in the results, um, all of these kind of figures of the past coming back? Well, I think one of the interesting things about that is, is you know, as you pointed out, we've already spent a bit of time talking about Trump. Um, you know, if we, if we look to what, what are the fundamentals um, in predicting midterm elections, right? Classically, um, there's two big things that we look at when we're predicting uh, elections, and, and this is the things that pointed towards them being Republic this year being Republican, right? Number one, president's job approval, um, how how well people think the president is doing or not, uh, right? In the run-up to uh, the election just days before, Biden's job approval was about 42.3, uh, depending on the whose average it is that you're looking at. I think that was real clear politics average was uh, Biden sitting on 42.3, um, which was just slightly lower than I think Trump was in 2018. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's quite low. Um, that's not looking good if you're a president going and fighting, a you know, an election campaign. Um, and then the other big thing, the other one of the two big, big beasts that's a fundamental that we look at is the state of the economy, right? And so um, whilst the uh, inflation rate is declining in the U.S., it's not as high as it was a couple of quarters back, um, it's still really, really high. And actually, in the second quarter, it was quite high. And the second quarter is usually in election forecasting models, the, the, the quarter that you look at uh, as being quite predictive of, of outcome. So, uh, you know, and the the news coverage in the, in the states was that one of the areas where people were particularly feeling inflation was in grocery stores, right? In, in the, the weekly food shop, um, and filling up the petrol tank, depending on what region of the U.S. you lived in, were the two main things that were you really feeling inflation. And so if you look at consumer confidence index, um, just a quarter or two ago, um, just slightly earlier in the year, than it was back in the financial crisis, crash of, of 2008, 2009, right? So it was dismally low, it's now rebounded all the way to be as low as it was during the financial crisis. So um, the fundamentals were really, you know, looking quite poor for the Democrats. And this is why we had the line that uh, it's going to be the economy that that drives it, you know, thinking back to James Carville's uh, iconic, uh, it's the it's the economy, stupid uh, line, um, you know, so it's going to be the economy and poor job approval. Ah, yes, the Republicans are going to do well. Well, other things happened, right? And I'm sure we'll probably get to those in in a minute. Um, but one thing that did happen was Trump inserted himself um, and inserted himself quite a lot. So in many ways, Biden's job approval was perhaps not the one to be looking at. It was maybe Trump's job approval was the one to be looking at. It was as much an election about Trump, uh, if not more in some ways, than it was about Biden. And Biden, they used very sort of strategically, right? He went to places where they thought he would do well. So he went to uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, right? Scranton, Bucks County, uh, in those sorts of crucial areas, um, Delaware, uh, you know, and uh, in, in sort of places where they thought he would he would do well is where they where, where Biden went. But otherwise, a lot of the coverage was equally about Trump, if not more. Um, 
and and then you have Obama, as you said, Jonathan. So, um, you know, Obama did come out uh, and he started campaigning actively in many ways more actively than than Obama was or than than Biden was. Obama was sort of all over the place, and this is not uncommon, right? So Obama's taken a he's he's been out for a while. Um, he's, you know, he's been quiet and now they, they, they come back. So that's not uncommon for presidents to do, but it is uncommon for the immediately out of office president to try to have such a high profile like Trump has done. Um, and that's where the, the uncommon element of it, of it was, I think. All right. So, I mean, we've, we've mentioned basically that the, the fundamentals weren't good for the Democrats in this election. I mean, obviously, yeah. The dead the incumbent party, we have pretty high inflation. Um, obviously, I think comparatively, this looks a bit weird for Europeans, given that the um it's so much worse over here, especially in terms of the the energy bills kind of thing, um, which the which is kind of America's been spared a little bit more. Um, but to Americans, it seemed like the economy is not going great. Um, why has this not damaged the Democrats in the way that we were expecting them? I suppose that's the million dollar question. How have they pulled off this pretty yeah. good result? overall <laughs> so uh according to the exit polls uh 31 percent of people who went to the polls said that inflation or the economy was what drove them to the polls 27 percent said abortion um and so to take a step back uh remember that we had the dobbs uh versus jackson decision earlier in the year uh this was a decision from the Supreme Court that uh, gave the Republicans a big win that they had wanted for a very long time, uh, which is throwing out the Roe versus Wade decision from the 1970s. Uh, and so the basically what they said was abortion, whereas, whereas the Roe, Roe versus Wade decision basically said that states have to allow some form of access to um, terminating a, a pregnancy. Um, some states made that as minimal as they possibly could, um, but they had to have some form of, of, of access to this. The, uh, the Dobbs decision threw that out and said, no, you don't. Uh, it's basically entirely up to the states, uh, whatever they want to do within that state. Now, many states had on their laws, um, sitting sort of as a law in the background, trigger laws, which said, if the Supreme Court ever overturns Roe, suddenly, uh, abortion is either banned or will be banned quite quickly. Other states moved very quickly to ban abortion or severely limit abortion access uh, within that state. So you had something like about half the states basically now um, moving to having some more restrictive access to, to abortion than, than previously before. Um, and this was seen as a big motivator for for Democrats, uh, particularly women Democrats. Um, and so we saw uh, female voter registration go up across quite a lot of states, uh, particularly Kansas, which was having a referendum on abortion not long after the Dobbs decision. We suddenly saw women's registration shoot up above men's and women's registration as Democrats shoot up well above women's registration as Republicans. And um, abortion access or abortion rights uh, won out in that Kansas uh, referendum. And so Democrats got really excited and said, this will be the issue that, that wins us the, you know, and, and saves us in the midterms. 
And so a lot of people are saying, ah, the, the problem for the Republicans is basically it's the dog that caught the car um, with, with winning, uh, with the uh, Dodds decision. Um, and so then, um, uh, sudden over the course of, of, of August and into September, inflation becomes more and more of a problem. And uh, abortion seems to start to die away as a salient issue that motivates people. And so the polls started to look like the, the Republicans bounced back. And so that's why we had the predictions going into it that the Republicans would, would probably do well. But it turns out that um, maybe as a sleeper issue uh, or whatever, or in certain key states, which is probably what it is, um, abortion access and tied to that to some form, democratic norms uh, motivate, motivated people to the polls. So there was a lot of reporting that said it wasn't just abortion, but it, for many Gen Zers, um, it was, well, if they're going to start taking away and restricting abortion access, then what about contraception? Um, and what about uh, same-sex marriage? Um, and for Republicans to go out in, in the few weeks before the election and sort of remind voters um, as, as Lizzie, Lindsey Graham did, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, conservative Republican, went out and said, if we win, uh, both chambers, if we win the house and the Senate, we should have, we should push through a national abortion ban. Well, if you want to, if you want to motivate the opposite side, who's afraid of, of losing out on abortion access, that's probably the thing to do, go out and scare them, uh, which is what seemed to happen. Um, so, um, then you have democratic norms and and the sort of access to to rights and you know people don't take well to having things that they've come to see as a right taken away from them and so those turned out to be big motivators so you had then in the exit polls um you know this this uh in, in women definitely broke for democrats so the electorate roughly around say 52 percent uh female um and about 53 percent across the national average broke for Democrats. Well, several percentage points will lose you an election in very tight races. And particularly if you look at independents, say for instance, in Pennsylvania's Senate race, I think independents about 57% uh, broke for Fetterman. Um, usually in midterms, you'd expect independents to break for, for Republicans. So again, several percentage points is enough to lose you out on the election if, um, if it's gonna be close. Okay, I mean, well, that's that's pretty heartening to hear, to be honest, because um, <laughs> there is a kind of pro-democracy vote going on. Um, yeah, and the results of this have been, um, as as listeners will probably know, that Democrats have have now officially kept control of the Senate, and they probably will lose the House, but by a pretty small margin. Um, so beyond that, I mean, it would be good as well if you could talk a little bit to how things have gone, kind of down ballot on some of the kind of state and local races, have they been as favorable to Democrats on the whole? So here's where we start to see the the, the patchwork of outcomes across the states. Um, right, so New York, we've already talked about New York. Um, actually, New York actually looks like a sort of what you would expect in a midterm election, right? The Democrats, yes, they did hold, uh, hospital held the, um, the governor's seat, but otherwise, uh, they lost quite a few uh, districts um, in that for House districts. Uh, for the Democrats lost quite a few House districts in New York. So it looks a bit like 
kind of what you would expect in a midterm election in New York. But across the board, um, Democrats did not too bad in the governor's races. They picked up uh, a couple of governor's races. The Democrats picked up one Senate seat, uh, Pennsylvania's uh, Senate seat. Um, and otherwise, there's been a sort of pattern of, of basically people sort of holding uh, pretty well. Um, several uh, several states, the, the state legislatures have flipped. Um, so um, again, I keep bringing Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is one where the, the state legislature is flipped, um, which will be uh, quite interesting to see how that affects Pennsylvania politics uh, over the next several years. Um, and then you had a variety of, um, of these interesting uh, ballot referendums pass. I wrote a couple, one or two are down. We've already talked about the ones about elections where you know, Nevada looks like it's gonna uh, adopt open primaries and ranked choice voting. Um, in California, Vermont, Kentucky, and Michigan, um, those all, those, all those, all four of those states adopted uh, or voted basically in support of abortion rights and, and abortion access. And Kentucky is an interesting one because if you look at the New York Times map about the swing, uh, Kentucky, even though it didn't go Democratic, um, the swing was towards Democrats uh, in that state that had abortion rights and abortion access on the ballot, which is a, a, an interesting thing. Um, Maryland and Missouri adopted legalized recreational marijuana. So uh, I think that takes us, is it to 21 states? Somebody will, somebody will know and somebody will, will let us know, but I think it's about 21 states that have recreational marijuana. Um, um, Arkansas, South Dakota, North Dakota all voted no uh, for, for recreational dope. Uh, but I thought Missouri was an interesting one for that. So I don't know the story behind that. Um, and it'd be interesting, I'll have to look into why Missouri adopted recreational marijuana. Because if you were to ask me, you know, off the top of my head, what states wouldn't, I probably would have sort of naturally put that in a no. I don't know, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota said no. So, um, uh, so, yeah, that's probably, I've been rambling on again for a while, so um, stop there. <laughs> yes, there are 21 states, but you have to add DC, which is not a state. So 20, right, yes, 20, yes. 21 and one, uh, what is <clears throat> one district? I had in my head that I was forgetting something and that, that was it, it was DC. <laughs> but DC, DC is decriminalized, hasn't it? Or did DC legalize? Oh, I think um, that's a good question. I'm not sure if it's decriminalized or about to look at this. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, well, while Andres Googles, um, I think we, we, just, we should start moving slightly towards towards wrapping up, um, I guess, on, on the US. Um, I suppose the, the main thing is just to ask what you think the, the takeaways are for the next two years and for the presidential election in 2024. Um, I know, obviously, that's... Uh, two years is quite a long time in politics, um, but yeah, is there anything that we can kind of take away from this about what we should expect going forward? Um, so, so Andreas is, is confirming that it's decriminalization, not legalization in DC. Um, uh, I mean, so we're now we're now in divided Congress territory, right? And this now takes us back to we can start re reviving all of the all of the literature from the eighties. Uh, in 90s uh, that was big on, on divided government in the United States. 
Um, which is interesting because, it, um, you know, some of the rhetoric around um, the the campaigning was, you know, stop the Democrats from having control, uh, vote the Republicans into control Congress, which very much harkens back to uh, sort of back when I was doing my PhD, uh, when I was working with with uh, uh, Bob Erickson, you know, one of the big names in, in uh, American political science and, and voting behavior. Uh, we were we were looking at exactly why people vote for divided government. So it's an interesting it's an interesting idea that that's that rhetoric is ba is back. But so we have divided Congress. Um, the Republicans in the House, the leadership, the Republican leadership in the House, several weeks ago, um, sent letters to the FBI and the Department of Justice that basically said. We're going to win and we're coming for you. Um, so they've already laid down the gauntlet, as it were, with the FBI and the Department of Justice that they're going to start investigating, say, for instance, the raid on Mar-a-Lago looking for the uh, classified documents that Donald Trump had squirreled away uh, in his desk uh, there. Um, they, they, will, they will definitely stop the January 6th uh, investigations uh, that are going on in the House. Um, they will likely launch investigations into every aspect of, of the, the Biden's personal life, including particularly uh, the president's son, Hunter Biden's business affairs. Um, so it's going to be a long two years of, of investigations coming out of the House. Now, the problem is for them, if they get mired, if they mire themselves up in investigations and they don't actually like push legislation through that challenges the Democrats in sort of meaningful ways, it could be it could be an issue for them. Um, and I mean, we, we've gone so far as as uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and other prominent Republicans saying that they want to impeach Joe Biden. Now, will they do that now that it's clear that the Democrats are going to hold the Senate because, you know, you impeach in the House, but then the trial goes to the Senate so we can be fairly certain that Joe Biden wouldn't be convicted and it would be sort of a waste of time to spend time trying to impeach him. But who knows? Maybe they'll be so ideologically driven that they'll they'll do that. But, you know, it, it, the, I think the big thing actually is the Republicans have already signaled that um, they would potentially hold up uh, discussions and a vote on raising the debt ceiling. Um, so in the U.S., Congress every every year just about has to raise what's called the debt ceiling, which is the amount that uh, the, the government can borrow. And so in advance of, of putting through the budget, which always increases, you know, if you increase the debt, um, the deficit, then you increase the debt. Um, and so they have to raise this, this limit of how much the U.S. can borrow. If not, if they don't raise the debt ceiling, the U.S. effectively starts to default uh, on, on some of its um, financial obligations. So that if the, if the Republicans have signaled that they want to try to, to, to block that. So one of the big things that the Democrats are going to have to do in the lame duck session, that is between now and, and January, um, is try to pass um, a, a bill that would raise the debt ceiling in advance of the Republicans taking over. That would be hard to do, but they could potentially do it. So you're going to see a lot of conflict between the House and the Senate over the next couple of years. Um, you can expect that we're going to return to a period of, of what's called gridlock. Not much is going to get done. 
Um, and you're going to have high profile and rather nasty investigations coming out of the House. It'll be interesting to see whether the Senate uh, ends up taking up some of these investigations and, and that sort of thing within it. Some of that will depend on the Georgia, Georgia race, uh, which I guess we haven't spent too much time on yet. But because Georgia is one of these states uh, that, that requires that the success, the, to win an election, you must get 50% of the vote. And incumbent Senator, Democratic Senator Warnock only got 49.4% uh, of the vote. Um, he didn't get to the necessary 50, so they're going to go to a runoff on the 6th of December between him and Herschel Walker, the Republican. Um, a very interesting candidate, if anybody hasn't paid any attention to that. I'm sure if anybody listening to this podcast won't pay attention to that. Um, so that, that, that will go to that runoff. Um, if the Democrats can, can hold Warnock's seat, then that gives them 51 in the Senate, plus Kamala Harris obviously being the tiebreaker in the background. That means that they would have an outright majority on committees, which they don't necessarily have now, which gives them more leeway in, in what they can do in the Senate. So yeah, it's, it's, not, gonna, it's not gonna be a fun couple of years in, in the US. It, I think it's only gonna get nastier um, by, the, by the way it sounds. On the other hand, just to say, um, Schumer has come out uh, today to say, we really need to look at compromise um, and we need to be encouraging compromise, um, which uh, just a shameless self-promotion plug there is where my current research is with uh, David Barker at American University. Um, we've had a couple of years of surveys now where we've been looking at public support for compromise um, in, in the legislature. So um, we will see if any of the stuff that David and I think that we've come up with actually works um, over the next couple of, of, of years uh, with um, potential for compromise there. Is, is there anything that you've already published on this um, or, or a talk? Uh, we, have a pay, we have a piece forthcoming now. And I don't remember what journal it's in. That's how bad it is. I, um, uh, goodness gracious, I'm sorry. I can't remember what journal it is. No, 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 no worries, no worries. No, when it comes, when it comes out, we'll, we'll definitely retweet it. Um, oh, from, from the, um, uh, but we have a, we're working on a book uh, with uh, Andy Ballard, who's also at American University. The three of us are working on a book where the front end of it is looking at, at public opinion, and then the back end of it will be looking at um, the sort of statements by uh, members of the uh, of Congress about compromise using using tweet Twitter to to sort of see how how compromising uh, they well maybe that's not the way to say it, how open to compromise they are um, in their in their public statements. Okay, great. Um, well, I think unless anyone has any last minute questions, we can leave it there. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on. That was really fascinating. Um, really, really um, answered some questions, which I had definitely as well. Um, but yeah, um, so thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, goodbye, everyone. I think we'll see you for Malaysia, I think, next time. I think it's the next one. Um, so uh, look forward to that and, um, and see you next week. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. We learned a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Sorry, I, I, I felt like I just sort of rambled on and on and on. And I... that's, uh, that's fine. That's how we always feel too. So. <laughs> <laughs>